0: Last week, Dinah talked to us about chapter 3 and the call of Moses. And so Moses is on his way to Pharaoh to answer the call of God, to tell Pharaoh to let the people go, when we pick up this very strange story that begins in chapter 4, verse 24 through 26. It's on page 49 of your pew Bible. It's a slightly different version than the one that I will give you this morning. On the way to the lodging place, the Lord met Moses... And was about to kill him. So Zipporah took a flint knife and cut off uh, her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it. You are a bridegroom of blood to me, she said. And so the Lord left Moses alone. And when she said bridegroom of blood, she was referring to circumcision. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Be seated, please. First of all, I want to tell you what I told Francis Downing last service, which is thanks for not doing the children's sermon on this passage. It is a strange passage. You know, there is a, uh, an old saying uh, that uh, goes back to ancient times. It's don't shoot the messenger. And apparently there was that practice. Sophocles um, talks about it with the Greeks. Uh, uh, Shakespeare makes reference to it. And uh, Henry the fourth. And I think you even see it in the Bible in the story of David's son Absalom, this idea that uh, one who has to bring bad news sometimes suffers being the bearer of the bad news and might be killed or, or wounded because of that. In the Bible, David has a son Absalom who leads a revolt against David, and in the revolt he's killed. So there are two messengers that are going to bring the word to David. One thinks it's good news. David will be glad that his son is dead and the revolt is over. And he quickly runs toward David. The other one knows good and well that David is not going to receive the death of a son as good news. And so he makes his way very slowly toward David so the other messenger will get there first. And bear the brunt of giving the bad news. Don't shoot the messenger. Well, the messenger is Moses. And he's on his way to give Pharaoh some very bad news. God has said, let my people go. So it would stand to reason that Pharaoh would do what he could to harm the messenger of God. That Pharaoh would do what he could to take care of Moses and and get rid of him. But in this very strange story, it's God that tries to harm God's own messenger. In this very strange story, God has told Moses, now go to Pharaoh and Moses is on his way and then we're told in the story that God is about to kill him. What's with that? Well, it, it is most unusual. Uh, the story not only is difficult to understand, but it's actually difficult to translate and interpret. It's not as clear, apparently, in the Hebrew as the version we use this morning wants to make it in English. For example, it doesn't say uh, necessarily that it's Moses who's attacked by God. That's our inference and, and that's our belief is that Moses is the one who's attacked. The text doesn't say how Moses is attacked. Is this the same angel that wrestled with Jacob in in, uh, Genesis 32 at the Jabbok River? Is this the angel of death that will make an appearance later in the book of Exodus? Is this just some random illness? Whatever it is, it gets Zipporah's attention. It's so obvious. And then who wasn't circumcised in this deal? Was it Moses? Did his parents not do it because of the oppression of Pharaoh? Not likely. But if it's his son, which one? Is it the oldest son that we read about a couple weeks ago? His name is Gershom, meaning I'm a stranger in a, in a strange land. Or is it another son, Elazar, who is born, we're not sure when, but later when we meet Moses and his family in the book of Exodus, he's got two kids. So we don't even know which one didn't get circumcised. And, and what is this bridegroom of blood business anyway? I mean, that sounds like on Halloween week something you'd watch on AMC TV. What does it mean? It's a very unusual story. And, and, and i got to tell you, I don't know. I don't know anything for certain about this story except this. Clearly, the story is about circumcision. It's obvious that Zipporah has circumcised one of Moses' sons. It's obvious when, when the text says she said bridegroom of blood because she meant circumcision. So that much is clear. Well, what do we know about circumcision? We know that God commanded it. Of God's people. We know that Abraham was told not only to be circumcised, but to circumcise all of his his, uh, male slaves. I mean, can you imagine being an adult in Abraham's household, having to stand in line for that? But they were all to be circumcised. It it was a commandment. Uh, So to be circumcised is, first of all, radical obedience to a God that calls you and you do it even if you don't get it. Another thing is it's very clear it's a sign of a covenant. Uh, This is what it is to be God's people in the Hebrew Bible. It is for males on the eighth day to be circumcised. And it's a sign of identity. This tells you who you are. You aren't like the other people who live in the tribes and nations around you. Your little boys are different. And we've probably talked more than you even wanted to hear in the life of Moses uh, and in the life of Joseph about the importance of knowing who you are and knowing whose you are. Well, circumcision was one way that you knew who you were. So all we know is that the stories about circumcision. From that, we just got to try to piece things together. This much we know: circumcision was commanded, but apparently, if you were traveling or journeying, you were exempt in, in, uh, from immediate circumcision on the eighth day. You, you could wait until you arrived in your home, till you settled. Until you settled down. Uh, There is a great picture of this. Well, I don't know. They may not have thought it was a great picture, but in the Bible, there's a great picture of this. In Joshua, the fifth chapter, all the men that were born from the time they left Egypt to the time they crossed over the promised land, that 40 year period, had apparently not been circumcised. A large number of them. So in Joshua 5, well, they get out the flints. And apparently, it was allowed to wait even up to 40 years because you were traveling or journeying. All that time. Well Moses is on a journey. He's far away from where uh, from where he started. He started in Egypt. He's out in Midian. Or maybe it's about the journey he's on right now. In chapter 3 God told him go to Pharaoh. So he's making his way. So either way one would assume that Moses sort of falls under this exemption. It's, it's, it's permissible. It's understandable not to circumcise your child if you're on a journey. We also know this. That it is possible that... Um, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, was a priest of, we might say, another denomination. While he may have worshipped the same God of the universe, he probably did not know God as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And, and uh, Jethro might not have known anything about circumcision. So you might well imagine when on the eighth day Moses pulls out a flint knife, that grandfather says, Now wait a minute, what are you doing to my boy? Have you ever known a, a grandparent who was interested in their grandchild's welfare? Have you ever met one of those people? They exist. And if you're going to pull out a knife to their grandchild, they may even want to say something about that. Some scholars believe that Jethro just said, we don't, I don't know where you're from, but we don't do that here. And may not have even allowed Moses to carry out this rite. I mean, I get that. I'm, I'm a Methodist pastor. We baptize lots of children And we baptize lots of children with Southern Baptist grandparents and they just don't get it, you know, and it's kind of hard to try to explain to them, what are we doing and why are we doing it? I mean, so you can imagine that Moses may not have any shot with Jethro. So maybe that happened. Well, that's understandable. But here's the deal. God's not buying any of that. There is no allowable excuse, not because you're traveling Not because your father-in-law is a priest of another denomination. And so God sets into action. Is about to kill, or tries to kill in your pew Bible version. It's it's hard to know exactly what's being said other than it's pretty dire and pretty severe. Well, what's going on here? As we try to understand the passage, let me offer a couple observations, or three. First one's this. You and I worship the God of the universe. Now, we may not believe everything the same about God, but would you you grant me this, that if God wanted to carry out a hit on somebody, God could do it? Fair enough. If God wanted to eliminate Moses, God could do it. So one of the things right away we realize is this isn't an attempt to kill Moses. This is a threat. This is, say a number of scholars, a shot across the bow, getting Moses gets deathly ill and God is going to get Moses' attention to something very important, and he's fortunate that his wife recognizes that that's that's what's going on and gets the message that God is trying to send. If God wants to kill Moses, believe me, God's going to be able to do it without much trouble at all. But God doesn't do it. It's a threat. It's a warning. And we'll talk about the warning in just a minute. Another thing that's very fascinating is it gives Zipporah, his wife, a chance to sort of get in the game. He's been called to face Pharaoh, but he's not called alone. I was grateful that Fran brought, brought the pencils this morning. That's a very biblical picture. Don't look for a Bible verse about pencils, but it's a picture that's in there. A picture that none of us is meant to go through this deal individually. None of us is going to go to Pharaoh on our own. God is going to send Aaron with Moses, but before that, Zipporah gets into the act. His family participates In his mission and in saving him. And I want you to notice this. There is some debate and discussion in our country today about equal pay for equal work. And I'm not going to get into that. But I want to tell you in the life of Moses, no man does the work equal to a woman. Nobody. Watch the women. Watch the women in the life of Moses. There's his mother. His mother, Yochabed, who to save his life puts him in an ark. Remember that a couple weeks ago. There's his sister Miriam who watches and follows the ark. And the moment it's discovered by another woman, Pharaoh's daughter, gets into the act and says, Need somebody nurse that child for you? And now, after those three women have participated in saving his life at the start, 80 years later, another woman gets into the game. And her name is Zipporah. It reminds us that we are like those pencils. And that none of us gets where we are today by ourselves. And that if we try to go into the mission that God has for us by ourselves, we are doomed to die. We're not going to make it alone. I've had the privilege, as you know, to go on a number of uh, trips... With Ray Vanderland. And these trips often involve climbing mountains and walking, hiking through deserts. And, and oftentimes people get tired. Oftentimes they get thirsty, don't have enough water. Oftentimes, well, like I did on one trip, uh, my hiking boot broke on the third day, so I had to borrow bubble gum to try to keep it together. And, but one of the things that happens is on these trips, people have to help each other. And so the first time you're getting thirsty and you don't have enough water for yourself, and someone offers you water, you know, your first response, because after all, you are an American, is, I can do it. It's okay. it's okay. I'll make it. But you won't. And then if you've ever seen Ray Vanderland on the video series, you, see, you know that his eyes start to fire up when he sees that. And he launches into you about how when you do not let another person to help you, you deny them their right to do what God put them on this planet to do. All of us were called to use our gifts and talents to help other people. And if you say, no, thank you, I can do it myself, you may think you're a person of faith, but you're a person who's cutting off faith. Faith has never been about independence. Faith has always been about interdependence. And so when someone wants to give you water or help carry your backpack, it is your obligation from God to say, yes, please help me. And they get to do it. It's a beautiful picture that Zipporah gets to get in this mission to Pharaoh. She gets in the game and becomes part of this community because Moses is learning he's not going to be able to face Pharaoh, the king of the known universe, alone. So it's an amazing story. It's a warning shot across the bow. It's an opportunity for community. But there's this. If I say these two words and you know the whole story of Exodus, you'll put them together. Blood. Death. You get the picture? It's called the Passover. In a very few short chapters and probably several months, radical obedience is going to be called on the kind that Zipporah demonstrated in the life of Moses. And it's going to involve blood. And this time, if you don't get it right, if you delay, if you make an excuse, if you dawdle, if you think of some other way to do it, you're going to be dead in the morning. Your firstborn will be dead. Radical obedience with blood is the only thing that will save you. And In this picture here of Moses and Zipporah, we get a picture of what they're all going to need to know. God teaches Moses so Moses can be very clear about teaching his people when that time comes. And Moses doesn't even know about this. He doesn't know about the Passover yet. He, he, he knows that they're all going to end up free and on the mountain worshiping God, but he has no idea how they're going to get there. But he's taught right here, right now, do it, do it the way I say it, do when I say it, and you'll live. Don't do it, and there'll be trouble. So what am I saying this morning? I'm saying this supposed attack from God is a wonderful act of grace. Grace. It is a warning that prepares Moses for his future and prepares his people for his future. A future that will require two things, radical obedience to God and radical dependence upon each other and God. Without those two things, they're not getting through Pharaoh, they're not getting through the Red Sea, they're not getting anywhere. It will take this radical obedience together for them to carry out. The mission of God. So what about you or me? Have you ever noticed that sometimes the challenges and trials that we don't understand at the time, actually we come to understand later? They've become things that have prepared us, that have shaped us, that have strengthened us for what was yet to come, for what God wanted us to do. We saw this, didn't we, in the life of Joseph? Joseph spends 13 years As first a slave and then a prisoner. And in those 13 years, this boy from Canaan learns to speak Egyptian, learns how the Egyptian culture operates, and learns how to manage first a household and then an entire prison. So when he's put second in command of Egypt and charged with feeding the whole world, he's ready to do it. His challenges and struggles have prepared him for what God had in mind. And I think sometimes it's the same way with those commands God gives you, the things God calls you to do, and you can't, for the life of you, figure out why God wants you to do it in this moment. But you go ahead and do it, and when you do it, at some point it becomes clear. A friend of mine was telling me a, a couple weeks ago, he was going through a difficult time with his family. It involves uh, grandchildren, so it's always very painful. And he said, I have to tell you that for years I showed up every morning to pray. I showed up every morning to do my devotional. I showed up every morning to read the scripture. And he said, and and a lot of days I just didn't get anything. He said, but when this hit, he said, I want to tell you, the only thing that got me by and got me through were all those mornings that I showed up not knowing why to pray and to study. That's how God often works. Strengthening and preparing us for what God knows is coming tomorrow, by challenging us or calling us to obedience today. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes God has these commandments, or we know God's calling us something, and we just don't get it. it doesn't seem to help us in any way, and but we do it, and then we start to find out that there's something bigger involved. I was having dinner with a good friend uh, Thursday night in North Carolina. And he told me about the time a couple years ago he flew to Austin, or three years ago, and he met one of my sons uh, for dinner in Austin, Texas. And he said, David and Pam, I have to tell you that what you have done with your parents, moving them to San Antonio, writing all their bills, cleaning the cat box, doing all that stuff, he said, they noticed. They know, your, your sons know you're doing that. And so I keep thinking... Yeah, you know, maybe in a few years <laughs> it'll be my turn. And it'll all become clear. Those times when it's really not convenient to get in the car and make another trip over to pick up something at the store, whatever. This business about honoring your father and mother, it's a lot easier when you're five than when you're 55. Trust me. It really is but it's taking you to something else. This business about not committing adultery, even when the relationship is not as interesting or it's stressed or the kids are requiring too much, you stay with it. And you reach a point when the kids are grown, they've grown up, but you've grown closer. And you start to understand why the single-hearted and minded commitment to each other, why God had that in mind all along. Sometimes we don't get it at the time. But God's strengthening and preparing us for something that God knows is coming. I know you've heard this story, but it's really one of my very favorites the rabbis tell. It's about a rabbi who uh, lives in, who works rather in a nearby village, but he lives outside town. And every day he takes a path into town. There are two ways in. He goes by a slightly easier route because there's a big rock, a big boulder that's in the other way. But one day he's getting ready to go into town, and God says, Rabbi, where are you going? He said, well, I'm going to the village. God said, I want you to go this route. He said, well, God, there's this big rock in the way. God said, I know I want you to go and I want you to push on it every morning on your way to work. And then when you come back from the village, I want you to push on it some more. Okay. Every day for a year pushes in the morning, pushes in the evening on the way back home. And then one day he gets up and gets ready to go back down that trail again. And the voice of the evil one says to him, Rabbi, where are you going? He said, well, I'm Going into the village. Well, why are you going that way? Well, there's a big boulder in the way, and God told me every day to go push on it. And the evil one said, Has it moved? Rabbi I said, Not one inch. The evil one didn't have to any more, and the rabbi took the easier path into the village. Came home that night. The next morning, got ready to start out on the easier path, and God said, Rabbi, where are you going? I said, Well, I'm going into the village. I said, Why aren't you going the way I told you to go? he said, God, I've been doing it every day for a year and that rock has not moved. It's not moved one inch. And God said to the rabbi, who said anything about moving that rock? I told you to push on it. Have you noticed, rabbi, in the last year how you've become stronger and now you help the women at the village carry their water? Have you noticed how in your strength you're helping the men build and add to their homes? Have you noticed your strength to help them in the fields with their crops?" Sometimes we're pushing on the rock because God tells us, and we don't get it. I don't know where you are. I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're having to do every day right now. But if God's asked you to do it, hang in there. Because one day, you'll know.